got a phone call this week, and it was a lady that had been in a church that I pastored in North Carolina, and she was weeping. She was distraught. She said, Pastor Randy, I am at the end of myself. My faith has hit rock bottom. And I said, Cheryl, what in the world? And she said, my 21-year-old daughter is strung out on heroin. There's a whole lot to that story. I want to encourage you to listen carefully today. You have sermon notes. If I've ever preached a message that you need to keep hold of, it's this one. I encourage you to hang on to these. You can't buy these at Walmart. Get you a binder, punch holes in it, and keep these. I hope and pray you never need this. But I have a strong feeling that you will. If you will do this every week and you will store these away in a binder, you'll have a commentary that when you have a dark day, you can turn and you can read and you can learn and you can remember just a thought. You know, it shouldn't surprise any of us that there are more Christians dying today for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ than ever in the history of the church. The Center for the Study of Global Christianity estimates that between 2005 and 2015, there were 900,000 Christians that were martyred worldwide. That's 90,000 a year, and if you do the math, that's one Christian every six minutes. Last Sunday in Sri Lanka, 359 Christians were killed and over 500 more were wounded in a suicide bombing that was specifically targeting Christian and the church. With so many Christians being attacked and persecuted and put to death in our day, many are asking question the question, where in the world is God when Christians need him? The Apostle Paul, I believe, asked a far better question. If you remember, Paul was once known as Saul. He was a man that was a Christian killer himself. He persecuted the church, and it was his life goal to eradicate Christianity from the face of the earth. And then he met Jesus. And he became the persecuted. In fact, he eventually lost his life because he chose to live it for Jesus Christ. They cut his head off. But Paul's question was simply this. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? What a question. Does it mean that he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or persecution or are hungry or cold or in danger or threatened or with death? Even the scripture says, for your sake, we are killed every day. And we're being slaughtered like sheep. 
Can anything separate us from Christ's love? No, he says. Despite all of these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loves us. And then he goes on in verse 38 to say, And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from his love. Death can't, life can't, the angels can't, and the demons can't. Our fears for today and our worries about tomorrow and even the powers of hell can't keep God's love away from us. Whether we are high above the sky or in the deepest ocean, nothing in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. So often people mistaken tragedy as divine disfavor. Things like tribulation and distress and times when we're persecuted and times when we go through uh, periods of famine and and peril and sword and, and sickness and death. Sometimes these difficulties are things that make you want to think, well, does God even love me or is God even real? But look at how Paul asked that, answered that question. Can anything separate us? He said, no, absolutely not. None of these circumstances can ever separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is true that painful circumstances may separate you from health and wealth and from friends and family and from comfort and ease. But you will never be separated from the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, not even when you face death. No one likes to die. No one wants to die. And yes, not everyone believes in heaven. And, and, and you know, I, I, don't, uh, I don't know of anyone uh, who doesn't want to go to heaven if they believe in it. You would be a fool not to want to go to heaven. That would certainly be an eternal mistake of which you would never, ever, ever recover. If you remember, one of the last things I said to you last Sunday is that because of what Jesus did for us on the cross and because of the great comeback that he made from the dead, that you can make a comeback. You can. From any situation that you face, you can make a comeback. In fact, the Bible tells us that there are two ways that you can make that comeback. You can make a spiritual comeback. In other words, you can choose to come back into a right relationship with God. You can choose to do that. Isaiah the prophet said, listen, the Lord is not too weak to save you. That ought to give us a clue right there. If he says the Lord is not too weak to save us, then we ought to understand that we need to be saved. He said, and he's not becoming deaf. He can hear you when you call, no matter where you are, no matter how big your storm is, no matter how loud things are in your life, he can hear you when you call. But he says there's a problem. And I want you to understand that the problem is not on God's side of the fence. The problem's on your side. He said the problem is your sins have cut you off from God. Now to put that in a very simple image, You start out like this with God, but sin separates you. And it's not that God went anywhere, it's that you left him. Your sins have cut you off from God, and because of your sin, he has turned away, and he will not listen to you anymore. I have people tell me all the time, 
Well, I pray to God. Well, what good's your prayers if you don't know God? The only prayer that God hears of a lost sinner is a prayer of repentance. Now, there, there was a recent survey that shows that most Americans do not believe what I've just read. In fact, I was shocked. 69% of people who go to church believe that everyone is going to heaven. 69%. So let me kind of rephrase that for you. There are 69% of professing Christians that don't believe in spiritual lostness. Did you hear that? Right along with Americans, we believe that everyone is going to make it into heaven. Everybody. Now, folks, that would be a beautiful thing if that happened. And I want you to know that that is certainly what God desires. And in fact, I would say to you that God has prepared and planned for that to happen. Heaven is big enough to hold all of us. And Peter said, the Lord does not want anyone to perish, so he's giving more time for everyone to repent. To repent. Well, well, why in the world is that necessary? It's necessary because we all sin. Every one of us in this room and in this world sins against God. In fact, with the very first sin that you commit, you become separated from God. Isaiah again says, we all like sheep have wandered away, each one to his own way. Paul clearly reminded the Christians in Colossae that they had all been sinners and that they were once separated from God because of their sin. He says, you were once so far away from God, you were his enemy, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions, and yet now... He has brought you back to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. So friends, listen carefully. What does that mean? That means that every one of us at some point in our life, because of our sin and because sin separates, every one of us is unfortunately lost to God. And when you're lost to God, that means you don't belong to God. It means you're headed in the wrong direction. It, does, it means that you're not headed in the direction of heaven. It also means that you're on your own. You're without God. And I want you to know that's one of the most dangerous places you can ever be in your life. To be lost and without a relationship to God. So, so here's something you need to think about. Everybody has a need to come back into a right relationship with God. Everybody needs to do that. You don't just slide into heaven. You don't get there by genetics. You don't buy your way in. Everybody needs a comeback. In Romans chapter 4 verse 25, Jesus, or Paul writes that Jesus was given to die for our sins. And he was raised from the dead to make us right with God. That is the spiritual comeback that we all need to make. And praise God, not only is it needed, but there's a way for it to happen. Jesus said, I am the way. No one comes back to the Father except through me. The Apostle Paul said, for if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God 
And it is by confessing with your mouth that you are saved. Peter said Jesus is the only one who can save people. His name is the only power in the world that has been given to save people. We must be saved through him. If you dissect that verse, you'll find that three times Peter mentions the salvation that we all need. And three times Jesus is referred to as the one and only Savior who can help us. So a spiritual comeback to God is possible for anyone. And again, it is desperately needed by everyone. So not only can you make a spiritual comeback, but you can also make a physical comeback. You can live beyond death in the grave through a bodily resurrection. Now I hope you believe that to be true. Because what I'm finding is that not everybody believes that. In fact, again, I was disturbed this week when I read this statistic. Do you know that one out of every four evangelicals are not certain that the physical resurrection of Jesus was a real historical event? 25% of us who claim to know him don't believe he was raised from the dead. That's scary. That's scary. I've met a few that believed only in the spiritual resurrection of Jesus. Huh. It was more than that. The Bible's very clear that every one of us eventually will die. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says every one of us must die once and then be judged. Not only will each of us die, but according to the word of God, we will all be resurrected. Everybody will be resurrected. You go, well, that's new. No, that's biblical. Paul says, brothers... We do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep. That's that's the terminology for death. Or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. He said, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Amen and amen and amen. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus, hang on to this, those who have fallen asleep in him. You know, when a Christian dies, the soul immediately goes to be in the presence of the Lord in heaven. The soul. And our body is typically buried. Now, we live in an age where some people are cremated. Some people are buried at sea. Some people get blown up in an explosion. But typically, the body is put in the grave. That's typical. But that's not the end. The dead in Christ will one day return when the Lord returns to get the church. He says in verse 15, according to the Lord's own words, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left to the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. In other words, if you're alive, when Jesus comes back, you're not going to be at the head of the line. For the Lord himself will come down... From heaven with with a, a loud command and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. That means the bodies of all the Old Testament and New Testament believers will be raised from the dead at that point. 
the transformed and resurrected bodies are going to be reunited with their redeemed soul. The soul is brought back with Jesus and your body is going to be resurrected and they're going to be put back together. And he said in verse 17, or verse 17, after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together. We're talking about the resurrection of the dead and the rapture of the living here. We're going to be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. That's encouraging. That's encouraging. John goes on to talk about the second phase of the first resurrection. Now, hang on to that. The second phase of the first resurrection. You see, at the beginning of the Great Tribulation, and that's an event that's coming in the future that you don't want to be alive through. You want to be gone when that happens, okay? At the beginning of the Great Tribulation, Jesus is going to come, and he's going to resurrect the Old Testament and New Testament believers. And then at the end of the Great Tribulation, those tribulation saints who have been martyred during the Tribulation, they're going to be resurrected, okay? Now, Revelation 20 says, and this is John's words, Then I saw thrones, and the people sitting on them had been given the authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony about Jesus. In other words, if you're going to live for Jesus during tribulation, they're going to cut your head off. For proclaiming the word of God, and I saw the souls of those who had not worshipped the beast or his statue, nor accepted his mark on their forehead or on their hand, and they will come to life again. And they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This is, he says, the first resurrection, or in essence, the second phase of the first resurrection. You got that? At that point, all the saved Christians who have died in Christ, have been resurrected, and we're all with the Lord for all eternity. Praise God. Everybody's gathered in. The church is gone. But then John reminds us that there is a second resurrection that follows after that thousand-year millennial reign, only this is not a resurrection of saved people, but rather of lost people. This is when all the lost dead are resurrected to stand before God to be judged. John writes, and the rest of the dead, those spiritually dead, do not come back to life until the thousand years has ended. You got that? Everybody gets resurrected. In Revelation 20 verse 11, John writes, and I saw the great white throne. That is the the throne of God. That these lost people are going to stand before to be judged. And I saw the one who was sitting on it. And the earth and the sky fled from his presence. But they found no place to hide. You can't hide from God. He said I saw the dead. We're not talking about just the physical dead. We're talking about the spiritual dead. Those that are separated from God. Both great and small. Rich and poor. Standing before God. And the books were opened. Including the book of life. And the dead were judged according to the things written in the books, according to what they had done. 
And the sea gave up the dead in it, all those buried in the sea. And death and the grave gave up the dead in them, all those who were buried in the ground or up and standing. And they were all judged according to their deeds. And death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. Why? Because there's no need for a temporary place to, to hide anymore or to be. It's judgment day. He said in verse 15, and anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. That, that, that's hell. That's hell. So, so what I want you to get from this is that every human being that has ever lived on this planet will one day be resurrected from the grave. You got that? The grave is the end of no man. Some are going to be resurrected and rewarded in heaven. Some are going to be resurrected and judged and spend an eternal hell in a new, new place, a bad place. So your comeback, think about this, your comeback from the dead is guaranteed. Everybody's it. There's no escaping it. It is a biblical fact. There's going to be a resurrection for everybody from the dead. So what does that mean, Brother Randy? Well, let me just kind of clean off a spot here for a minute. It means you won't wander around aimlessly as a ghost or as a zombie. You want to know why? There's no such thing. And neither will you become an angel or a demon. They're of a different kind of creation. It means that reincarnation is impossible because it's not biblical. The Bible says there's a resurrection, not a reincarnation. You die once, not multiple times. It also means that you will not just cease to exist when you die. That's what the Jehovah's Witness will teach you. But friends, it... The scripture says you will exist somewhere in eternity. Somewhere. And there's only two choices, heaven and hell. Disney World's not an option. It also means that you will not sleep in the grave until Jesus comes back. Soul sleep is not biblical. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, For we know that when these earthly tents, that's our body, that we live in is taken down when we die and leave these bodies. We have a home in heaven, an eternal body made for us by God himself and not by human hands. We grow weary in our present bodies and we long for the day when we will put on our heavenly bodies like new clothing. For we will not be spirits, souls, without bodies. But we will put on new heavenly bodies. Man, I can't wait for that day. He says our dying bodies make us groan and sigh. Snap, crackle, pop every day when we get up. He said it's not that we want to die and leave and have no body at all. We, we want to slip into our new bodies so that these dying bodies will be swallowed up by everlasting life. God himself has prepared us for this. And as a guarantee. He has given us his Holy Spirit. 
So we are always confident, Paul writes, and even though we know that as long as we live in these bodies, we are not at home with the Lord. The implication here is quite clear, and it's simple. What Paul is saying is that to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. The soul, which is the most important part of us, and you know, we don't give the soul much attention. We feed our body three times a day. How often do you feed your soul? Think about it. Your body's going to deteriorate. Your soul is going to exist forever. Your body cannot live in heaven. It is not equipped for that, but your soul is. But it has to be transformed. The soul goes to be with the Lord if you're a believer. The body is prepared and placed in the grave for a future resurrection that has been promised by the Lord. Now, here's an important piece. I am convinced that for you to believe that the grave is not the end of you, the end of your life, and that you'll one day be resurrected, you have to first believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, then you don't believe that you're going to be beyond the grave either. In fact, Paul says that you can't even be saved if you deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Did you know that? It's in Scripture. He says in in, in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, For if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, not Savior, but Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, You'll be saved. It takes both of those. So, Brother Randy, how in the world do we, 2,000 years later, know that the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ took place? How do we know that? Well, I wasn't there. No, nobody in this room was there. So how do we know? Well, I'm convinced that I've studied the 28th chapter of Matthew. I've found proof that the resurrection of Jesus Christ took place. Here's some things that I learned. First and foremost, in this 28th chapter, there is the testimony of an angel, a messenger of God, a divine being, not a divine being, a being created by by the Lord who came to deliver a divine message. Verse 1 talks about that, and it tells us in these first six verses, that this angel specifically said that Jesus had risen from the dead and that he's alive and that he even rolled the stone away to prove it. Now, if you remember, the, one, the women who had gone there saw Jesus placed in his grave even before the stone was rolled away, or ro- rolled in the, excuse me, across the entrance of the tomb. They had gone there to prepare the Lord's body to get it ready for burial that day, but then they had to stop because of the beginning of the Sabbath. So they saw him placed in that tomb before the stone was put across the front. I I am also convinced that the soldiers were a witness to the burial of Jesus because it was their responsibility to see that Jesus was dead and that he was buried in the tomb and that he had absolutely no way to get out and nobody had a way to get in to steal the body. That's exactly what the Jewish leaders demanded. 
in the 27th verse, uh, or 27th chapter of Matthew, verse 62, it says that the next day, on the first day of the Passover ceremony, the leading priests and the Pharisees went to see Pilate, the governor, and they told him, Sir, we must, we, we remember what that deceiver once said while he was still on the cross, while he was still alive. After three days, I will be raised from the dead. That's what he said. So we request that you seal the tomb until the third day. This will prevent his disciples from coming and stealing his body and then telling everybody that he came back to life. If that happens, we'll be worse off than we were at first. In other words, it's bad enough that we murdered the man, but if we can't keep him dead and in the grave, we're going to have bigger problems. So Pilate replied to them, take some guards and secure it as best as you can. (laughs) There were three things used to secure the tomb of Jesus. There was this large stone that took multiple people to push it across the front of the, the entrance. There was also an official seal Uh, Scholars believe that maybe it was a piece of rope that was waxed to the front of the stone and to the wall of the the tomb, kind of a seal type thing, so you would know if it was moved. And there were also soldiers that were put there. So he had three tiers of security. But friends, it didn't work. It didn't work. The angel spoke to the women that came that first day resurrection Sunday morning and said don't be afraid I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified but he isn't here (laughs) he's not here Uh, he's been raised from the dead just as he said would happen come and see where his body was I said last Sunday that the angel didn't have to roll the stone away for Jesus to get out he was gone He came to life again in his transformed, resurrected body and being as it was and it, you know, that that's the way we're going to be one day prepared for heaven. And he walked right through that wall of that tomb and was gone. That's going to be fun. I'm not going to have to walk through a door anymore. You see, the stone was moved away so that the soldiers and so that the women and so the apostles could see that Jesus was gone. He was raised from the dead. And that's the testimony of the angel. Okay, There's also the witness of the women that came to finish preparing Jesus' body. They came, stood there outside, and they heard this angel as he spoke. And they, they heard him say, Jesus is not here. And then they got to thinking, well, we remember where we saw him last. And I'm certain they looked in and they saw that he wasn't there. And they quickly saw that he was gone. And then they did exactly what the angel told them to do. Why? Because they believed what the angel had said. In verse 8, it said, the women ran quickly from the tomb. They were frightened, yes. (laughs) But they were also filled with great joy. And they rushed to find the disciples to give them the angel's message. What is amazing about this for me is that God honored their belief and their obedience by letting them be the first to encounter the risen Lord. They're on their way to find the disciples and, 
And it says that Jesus met them and stopped them in their tracks and said to them, good morning. (laughs) Good morning. Can you imagine that? The man you last looked at that was dead now says good morning to you. It says they fell to their knees and embraced his feet and they worshipped him. You would have too. But Jesus said to him, you're holding on to me for dear life. Don't be frightened like that. Go and tell my brothers that they are to go to Galilee and that I will meet them there. And that's exactly what they did. They were the first to witness our resurrected Lord. And they were the first to share what they had seen with their own eyes. But not only was there the testimony of the angel and the witness of the women. There was also the report of the soldiers who had been guarding the tomb. In verse 11 it says, "And, And as the women were on their way into the city, some of the men who had been guarding the tomb went to the leading priests and told them, what happened? I want you to notice that this was a very tense, tense moment in that city. And I want you to also notice that it says not all of the soldiers went to share the bad news. I don't know what they did, but I have all sneaking suspicion that they were running for their life. I'm sure that these soldiers were scared to death to tell the truth that They had lost Jesus' body because, you see, that is a crime punishable by death. Obviously, some of the soldiers were compelled to tell the truth. And you say, well, Brother Randy, what did they say? They said the truth. We we stood out there all night guarding the tomb, and, and nobody came, and nobody left. And all of a sudden, this angel appeared, and the stone was removed. The seal was broken. And we looked in, and this guy, Jesus, that we saw placed in that tomb was gone. And we couldn't find him. I can assure you, they they scoured that place looking for Jesus' body. Folks, that's what they told. That was their report. And that was the absolute last thing that the religious leaders wanted to hear. Why? Why? Because the report of the soldiers was concrete evidence that Jesus had been raised from the dead. Just like he promised would happen. And so there you have it. Jesus gave them their proof. They wanted a sign to prove that he had the divine authority to do what he had been doing. And they got it. They got their sign. And and you would have thought, at least at this point, that they would have changed their heart and their mind about Jesus and believe in him, but it didn't happen. In fact, it only hardened their hearts. And they continued to refuse to accept Jesus. So you've got the testimony of the angel, you've got the witness of the women, and you've got the report of the soldiers. But you need to add to that list of proofs concerning the resurrection of Jesus that the religious leaders chose to pay a bribe to the soldiers so that they would lie about the resurrection. How do I know that? Well, it says that in Scripture, verse 12. It says, a meeting of all the religious leaders was called. They scrambled to get in that place. And they decided to bribe the soldiers. And they told the soldiers, you must say, Jesus' disciples came 
during the night while we were sleeping, and they stole his body. If the governor, if Pilate hears about this, we'll stand up for you and everything will be all right. Yeah. We know how that plays out. So the guards accepted the bribe and they said what they were told to say and their story spread widely among the Jews and they, they still tell it today. Guys, the greatest cover-up in the history of humanity took place that day. The greatest cover-up. And the truth about Jesus just could not be told. They did not want that information to get out. The evidence had to be destroyed. If they had had cell phones, they would have taken hammers and beat them. If they'd have had email back then, they would have raced it. If they'd have had hard drives, they would have bleached them. You know what I'm talking about. (laughs) The soldiers were silenced when it came to telling the truth. They were given hush money and they were told to tell this particular lie. And that is exactly what they did. The cover-up of the resurrection... was something that they just had to have happen. And they did the best job they could do of covering it up. But 2,000 years later, the truth about the resurrection of Jesus Christ is still being told, and he's still changing lives. You want to know why? It's because our resurrected Lord was also seen by the church. They witnessed it. I'm talking about the Lord's disciples here. And and, and the church refused and has refused to be silent about the resurrection. Now, there's an interesting passage. It's two verses, verse 16 and verse 17, that, that are interesting. You know, God didn't just write about the good things in Scripture. He shows us humanity, warts and all. We are not perfect as believers. Amen? We all have warts. (laughs) Look at verse 16. It says, Then the eleven disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go, and they met him there. And when they met him, it says they worshipped him. Absolutely, you would have expected that to happen. But... Some of them still doubted. Not everybody was on board at this point. And I like the fact that Matthew doesn't sugarcoat the truth here. He says some of the disciples believed what they saw. And some of them didn't at first. I I mean, think about this. What would you think if you saw somebody who was dead put in the grave and he came out of the grave? That'd be a pretty hard thing to accept, wouldn't it? That'd be a pretty, I mean, you would think, oh, that's got to be a ghost or, or there's got to be a trick here. They're still trying to figure out how Houdini did all his stuff. I heard the other day that he had a false thumb and he, he, he put a paper clip up in a false thumb and he, he got it out and who knows? We don't know everything. 
The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a hard thing to wrap your head around. But it happened. And it says it happened. It's one thing to believe a promise. Jesus made one. It's another thing to believe a friend's testimony. And there were several. The ladies had their testimony. It's quite another thing to see the risen Lord with your own eyes and then to hear him with, your own, with, with his own voice. I'm sure they recognized his voice. Those ladies did. They knew it was Jesus the minute they heard him speak. But then they saw and they heard a risen Savior. Wrap your mind around that. This dead guy is now alive and he's speaking. Can you imagine the impact that that would have on you? Huge. You'd never be the same. And then think about what Jesus said. He said, I have been given complete authority in heaven and on earth. And he just proved it because he just came out of the grave. You got that? He proved it. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teach these new disciples to obey all the commands that I've given you, and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Take that to the bank, write it in concrete, it is truth. And listen, friends, it is absolutely critical that we go and tell the story of our risen Savior. Why? Because, first of all, that's what we were told to do. Second of all, that's what the early disciples did. They did just exactly what Jesus told them to do. They went out and said, Jesus is risen, and he's alive indeed. And think about this. If they hadn't done what they were told to do, you and I wouldn't be here today. It's because of their steadfastness to tell the truth about Jesus Christ that you and I are saved today. And guys, listen. There are many more out there that are yet to hear the truth that need to know about Jesus. In John 12, 32, Jesus said, And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone to myself. Jesus was lifted up, and he was really crucified on the cross. He was dead when they took him down, guys. He said, it is finished. And he gave up his spirit and he died. He was also lifted up out of death in the grave. He arose from the dead. Not just in spirit, but in body. He was transformed. And he was even lifted back into the heavens to be seated at the right hand of the Father where he is to this very day. And when we lift up his story and we tell others about Jesus Christ and what he has done for us, he has promised that he will save the lost. He says, and I will draw everyone to myself. Do you know that the Bible says that unless the Spirit of God draws you, you cannot be saved? Do you know that? There are people today that hear the gospel and they say, well, I'm not ready to do that today, but whenever I get ready, I'll do it. No, you won't. Because without the convicting spirit of the Holy Spirit working on your heart and drawing you to be saved, you can't be saved. You can't be. And so I tell people all the time, the best time for you to be saved is when you feel convicted. 
Don't run from conviction. Run to God. That's a gift from God. The story about Jesus Christ has been being told by the church for the last 2,000 years. And we will continue to tell it until Jesus comes back. That's what we're doing here at Harvest. We're telling the story of a risen Savior. And praise God as we tell that story, people get saved. Three, three got saved last week. Yeah, three. I like it, but I'm not satisfied. It ought to be 30. It ought to be 300. It ought to be 3,000. Praise the Lord. One day, Jesus is coming back. And he's going to lift us up from the dead. And we too are going to make an eternal comeback from the grave. That's important. There is a comeback in the future for every human being that's ever lived on this earth. We are all going to be resurrected. Don't think you're going to skip that. You are going to be resurrected from the dead. That's what scripture teaches. And it teaches that some will be rewarded in heaven. And it teaches that some will have an eternal residence in hell. My question to you is, where are you planning on living in eternity? Where? Some of you may go, you know, Pastor, I I really don't know where I'm going to be. Well, then I'd I'd be making plans to move right now. (laughs) To move out of your seat and move forward. Come to God. I'm serious. Because if anything has taught me this week, you don't know that you're going to be here tomorrow. Death can hit anybody. Brian was singing just the other day. But Brian's sugar went to 1,300 this week. And overnight, not only did sugar go sky high, but he coated on the table and they had to incubate him. Praise God, he's come back around and they've taken the tube out and he's breathing now on his own and it looks like he's going to recover, but he was that close. I saw him. He was that close to checking out. We're all that close, okay? Where are you going to spend eternity? I want you to bow your heads. Everybody bowed. Every eye closed, I want you to think as I pray. Father, it is not your will that any should perish, but that everyone, everyone should repent, trust Jesus, and be saved. We all need to be saved. We're all sinners. If we're not saved already because of faith in Jesus Christ, then, Lord, you're giving an opportunity for those who are not saved to be saved. 
I, I pray simply this, Lord. Help that person closest to hell to be saved today. You know who they are? You know what they're struggling with? You can hear them. And you're strong enough to save them. Lord, soften their heart, please. Help them not to be bound by where they sat in that chair. Nor by the circumstances that they live in. Help them to see only one thing being important, and that is the salvation of their soul. And help them to know that you love them so much that you made a way through your son Jesus to save them. No matter what they've done, no matter where they've been, Lord, you love them too much to leave them that way. You made a way for them to be forgiven. For them to be in a right relationship with you. And it's simply by trusting your son. Lord, help people to do that today. In this church, but also wherever the gospel is being preached around the world. Help people to come to Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for making that possible. We do praise you, Lord. And we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you stand with me? We think about that opportunity.